This podcast is sponsored by Bovida Humidity Packs. Bovida Packs are meant to be stored with your cannabis flower. This helps control the relative humidity inside your jar, which is going to control the cannabinoid and terpene profile of your flower over time, so you'll never have to experience dry, crusty nugs. You may have seen Bovida Packs in the weed bags you buy from the dispensary with your flower, but you can also purchase these for your home use. I highly encourage that you do, especially if you buy your flower in bulk. The packs come in a variety of sizes depending on how much bud you have at home. They are incredibly useful and affordable, and I noticed a huge difference when I started using these, and now I could never go back. I also want to note that every single Bovida employee that I have spoken with has been incredibly happy working at this company, and I have so much respect for them for being an ethical employer and helping fund education like this podcast. If you want to purchase some Bovida packs, the links will be available in the show notes of this episode. Hey, welcome back to Bioactive, where we talk about how different substances work in the body. Today, we're talking about psychedelic science and some incredible new advances in the field. Before we get started on this episode, I want to give some background information so we're all on the same page. Our guest today is Chris Witowski, who is the CEO and co-founder of Solera, a biotech company creating new psychedelic drugs to help with a variety of conditions like anxiety, depression, and PTSD. I know there's a lot of contention about pharma, quote, taking over psychedelics and monetizing from nature, which I completely understand and that's rational, but I want to ensure you of a few things. First, this is not big pharma working on this. This is small pharma, and you'll hear more about how Solera was started and their mission in this episode. And two, these movements towards psychedelic drugs without the hallucination component is going to change a lot of lives. Although you and me may find some value in the classic tripping experience associated with psychedelics, many people who have a genetic predisposition to conditions like schizophrenia are advised against hallucinogenic drugs and still need to find relief from debilitating mental health conditions. And many people need to have this medicine available at home for a much lower barrier to entry compared to going to a facility for a modern psychedelic therapy session. Nobody is trying to take away the traditional methods of psychedelic consumption. These advances are a tool for the portion of the population that needs it. Now for the science. Classic psychedelics act on the serotonin 2A receptor. There are a variety of different serotonin receptors in the body, but the 2A receptor specifically has been associated with the hallucinogenic component of psychedelics, as well as a lot of the euphoric feelings that come from taking psychedelics. However, the component that is likely responsible for helping with the profound medicinal benefits of psychedelics, like depression, is mediated through a different receptor called the T. TRKB receptor. An activation of this receptor does not cause the hallucinations. The TRKB receptor is linked to enhancing neuroplasticity or the ability for your brain to rewire and think differently and get out of the harmful repetitive patterns of thinking. Pharmaceutical antidepressants also work through the TRKB receptor as well as promote neuroplasticity. But pharmaceutical antidepressants have a much lower affinity at this receptor compared to the psychedelics and can take weeks to have any measurable effect on neuroplasticity. 
for many mental health conditions, people don't have weeks to wait. In this interview with Chris, he brings up a paper that was published just two days before we spoke that describes these findings in more detail. Since editing this episode, I have made a social media video describing this paper in detail, and you can check that out on my social media platforms, as well as Patreon, where I've linked that video, as well as linking this groundbreaking publication. This was one of my favorite interviews to date, and I think you'll love it too. All right, so on this episode of the podcast, we have Chris Witowski, who is a co-founder and CEO of Celera, which is a biotech company looking at new neurological therapies for anxiety, depression, cognitive disorders, as well as other psychiatric conditions. I think that Chris and the rest of the team at Celera are doing some of the most innovative research in the space, and I'm so excited to talk with you today. So if you wouldn't mind just giving a little more introduction about what you and the rest of the team at Celera do and kind of what your goals are, and then we'll just continue the conversation. Great. Thank you, Riley, and um, thanks for having me as well. Um, so I'm Chris Witowski, the co-founder and CEO of Celera. Um, my background actually, I, I think we share this in common, actually is a natural products chemist. Uh, got my PhD at the University of South Florida and really was looking at ways to find new drugs from nature. And at that time, had a lot of projects focused on microbiology and you know trying to tease out new antibiotics, anti-infectives from these organisms. Um, it's just funny how kind of things have evolved from there and um, you know, psilocybin is now at the forefront and, you know, certainly was not the case back when I was in school. And, um, you know, obviously as a natural products chemist, you, you value what nature provides, but in many cases in, in what we're doing as a biotech company, we're trying to make these molecules better drugs ultimately. And I mean, our goal isn't to replace psilocybin. It's, it's a naturally occurring compound. Soon it will be an approved drug. Um, but what we're doing at Solera is really finding ways to make these better molecules. And one of the ways that we're addressing this is actually looking at the hallucinogenic effects as essentially a side effect of the treatment. And there's a lot more evidence now showing that hallucinations really aren't necessary to have the quick and the sustained therapeutic benefits across depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, uh, and many, many other disorders. Um, we look at it as a way of increasing access for people and, and ultimately having patients have optionality in their treatments. Um, we talk to a lot of patients, a lot of psychiatrists, who ultimately say, you know, hallucinations would be something that they're not comfortable with, at least initially for these types of therapies. And when you look at certain patient populations, say if you have schizophrenia, psychosis, even a familial history of psychosis, they should not take psychedelics. It can actually leave them worse off. Um, and you know, also we've, we're kind of starting to see it a little bit, um, but the commercial ability of these compounds and uh, patients having to go into a clinic and be supervised for up to eight hours, having very hands-on talk therapy, while it does seem very effective, and, and you know, again, I, I think these will be approved drugs very, very soon, it is going to be a burden 
uh, both for the provider of the care, uh, which the infrastructure is not nearly built out enough for, I mean, millions upon millions of people who need to access these therapies, but also there's no real insurance system in place, at least here within the U.S., in order for these people to actually access affordable care. Um, you know, there's been reports both from the U.K. as well as within the U.S. that say an FDA-approved, say, psilocybin or MDA, uh, MDMA therapy can cost upwards of $25,000. And many portions of this, say the talk therapy portion, is almost never covered by insurance companies. So uh, unfortunately, that burden, at least in the near term, is going to fall on the patient. So at Celera, again, we're looking to address these problems. How do we create drugs that don't make you hallucinate. Ultimately, that means more people can take them and more people are comfortable with taking the drug and they can take it home with them and, and not have these side effects. And this fits within the current um, you know, insurance payer system. So it's much more affordable for patients to access these types of therapies. And ultimately having more optionality for patients to say, okay, I want a hallucinogenic experience or I don't. And I think that's really important as well. Yeah, man, you touch on some really good points there. I really like your approach at accessibility because as you're saying, oftentimes these either IV infusion treatments, you're going to a clinic, you're going multiple times, you have to be monitored by, you know, a physician to make sure everything's okay, which, you know, that's all fine, but if your healthcare is not covering that, then it's really only accessible to a very small uh, proportion of the population. So mm -hmm. I want to touch on a few things, but as far as accessibility, um, would that mean that the um, the compound would have to be uh, bi bioactive in like oral form, like a pill, or um, I think you've mentioned like transdermal type patches before that make it really dosable and also bioavailable. And is this kind of metrics that you're screening during the drug development pipeline to kind of be aware of, you know, okay, this drug has a really good profile for, you know, you know, what makes it a good drug and what makes it able to go into the bloodstream and cross the blood brain barrier. Because I also, we do have a lot of like similarities in our backgrounds as, you know, I'm a natural product chemist. That's what I did in graduate school. I also studied, you know, both marine organisms and plant organisms. And I also developed a pipeline for looking at actually new neurotherapeutics, specifically in the opioid system. And this was a huge obstacle for us is like initial screening of these compounds just based on the, the physiochemical properties of that molecule. And it's like, can we look at that molecule and say, this molecule seems like it would make a good drug because X, Y, and Z. Is that part of your pipeline? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, we, we do have in-house capabilities to make these drugs, test them initially, look at will they be orally bioavailable? Because as a take-home therapy, that's, I mean, the majority of medications are orally dosed. So that is something that we look at. And it is one of the features of our lead compound, SIL006, is it's orally active. Um, you mentioned the transdermal route. That's actually something that I had a lot of experience uh, coming from my prior background, actually in the cannabis industry and in developing uh, transdermal delivery methods, both patch, uh, gels, uh, et cetera. And getting those molecules through the skin is a lot different than, say, a small molecule like uh, dimethyltryptamine, which we do have active programs with. Um, with di uh, dimethyltryptamine or DMT, it has zero oral bioavailability by itself, which is typically why people take ayahuasca, which have other MAOIs, which allow you to ingest and actually not metabolize the drug. 
Um, and currently it's being delivered in a clinical setting via intravenous needles. And ultimately, I don't think dosing a patient with a pretty uh, uh, intense psychedelic experience probably isn't the best way to do it. So one of the things, again, that we focus on early at Solera is how do we make these more patient-centric delivery methods? And, um, you know, we looked at DMT as a really powerful compound in that it does work at lower doses, uh, even more so than other psychedelics, say like LSD uh, and psilocybin, which have been tested looking at things like neuroplasticity, uh, which is really the common mechanism between all psychedelics. And DMT appears to be the only one that really does have an effect at lower doses. Um, partly because, you know, it's produced in our own brains for a reason. Uh, no one's quite figured that out, but I'm sure there's a lot of uh, hypotheticals to get into, but beyond the scope of today. Um, and we looked at a transdermal delivery system of DMT as a way to really not get the peak experience uh, of DMT, but really kind of plateau it out. So uh, you get a longer delivery, uh, you know, we'll call it a microdose-like method. Um, and we've been able to sustain that in, in preclinical studies over 24 hours without hitting hallucinogenic effects. Um, and, and it's uh, interesting in that the bioavailability of DMT through the skin is far greater than we, what we anticipated. And we don't have to use MAOIs to uh, enhance uh, the drug experience or prolong it. Really just DMT itself through the skin uh, can provide uh, you know, delivery of DMT over 24 hours, which uh, I'm a scientist and a skeptic, but I was pretty blown away by some of those results that we got in the preclinical studies. So, you know, we are looking at different ways to deliver these molecules in a patient-friendly format, which is avoiding needles uh, at all costs, and especially for take-home medicines, something that doesn't make you hallucinate, whether it's a, a DMT patch, which doesn't quite get to those levels, or it's a new molecule, which avoids hallucinogenic uh you know, side effects altogether. Wow, that is amazing. I, this is a side note, but have you seen any people um, using like DMT vape pens at festivals and things? Like, I didn't really know this was a, a thing that people did, and I was kind of mind blown when I first saw videos of people just ripping DMT pens. Um, I feel like that's probably not the safe to, safest method to go about dosing yourself with DMT, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably not. Um, I mean, vaporizers are, you know, pretty widely available now in a lot of different formats. So putting DMT into a vape pen is uh, fairly straightforward. You know, it doesn't provide sort of the breakthrough experience that, you know, most people maybe are looking for in a, in a DMT uh, dosing session. But it is sort of a low dose method. And, you know, the thing with, uh, you know, smoking DMT is it's very rapid. I mean, the onset is, you know, seconds ultimately, and, and the duration is you know, 10, 15 minutes, uh, and then you're sort of in that come down afterglow stage. So it's a very, very interesting molecule. Again, another natural product uh, found throughout nature. And, you know, it's one of those that is very near and dear to us. It's Solera because we think it has a lot of promise, both for, you know, it's actually in phase two trials now for depression. I would say when you look at it for, comparing it to psilocybin for depression. It works just as well. About 50 to 60% of patients are in remission months out from a single dose. But the duration of the trip is ultimately about 30 minutes to an hour, and then ultimately the patient can be discharged, which, you know, it's about eight hours for psilocybin. 
So there's a lot of different ways that, I mean, these molecules open up the brain and provide options for patients and physicians to treat um, themselves. So yeah, it's, it really comes down to optionality and, and finding new ways to deliver these molecules in a better format than what's currently being done. Yeah, and kind of with that comparison of psilocybin versus DMT for something like depression, how does the efficacy of these compounds compared to traditional pharmaceuticals that are used as antidepressants or even some parallel conditions like anxiety or these other things? I mean, largely for mental health, when you're looking at depression, anxiety, it's SSRIs or, you know, the first generation antidepressants. I mean, those drugs, they take about six weeks to work, which for most patients, you know, you want to get better as soon as possible, not have to wait six weeks. And even then, you know, about 30 to 40% of patients don't respond well. Um, there are side effects with these medications as well, weight gain, sexual dysfunction. You don't really, the quality of life benefits, I think are really a big detractor. You don't necessarily feel depressed when you have a good response from antidepressants, but you also don't feel happy. You just kind of live in this blunted state. Um, whereas I think uh, psychedelics really enable a better quality of life. You know, a single dose of drug works months. So, you know, okay, you have side effects for maybe a day or two, but then, you know, you live a more normal life for, for months and years afterwards. So I think that's a big benefit and they also work rapidly. Within 24 hours, you see depression scores go down marketedly, I would say better than traditional antidepressants. So it's obviously an interesting new area in that, you know, these legacy drugs haven't been improved upon for, you know, about 20 or 30 years. Honestly, I think psychedelics in the 60s and 70s were looked at as sort of the breakthrough for psychiatry, but then, Ultimately, um, you know, regulations sort of got in the way and then antidepressants were approved. And then now again, looking, you know, in the last 10 years or so, people are like, these drugs really works. It's psychedelics. I mean, we talked to a lot of companies, big pharma companies, investors, you know, thought leaders. Everyone says that psychedelics really are the future of mental health. And, you know, I think we're in the very early stages of really seeing that. Uh, which for researchers is really exciting in that, you know, research hasn't been done for 60 years and we have better tools, better technology to analyze how they work. I mean, we can look at brains and understand different connectivities, what makes a brain unhealthy versus a healthy brain. Um, so, you know, having these tools now just allows us to uh, develop better medications. And ultimately, um, you know, one thing I'm very passionate about is finding ways to find the right patient to respond properly with the drug. Um, you know, I mentioned some of the limitations of psychedelics for people with schizophrenia, psychosis. I mean, even people with dementia and Alzheimer's disease, I think there's a lot of promise. I mean, these people, they have their own issues with anxiety, depression, end of life, you know, knowing your brain is deteriorating, but knowing there's nothing really that's going to make it better. And these patients really do get in a depressed state. And you know, as your memory declines, you can't put someone through a psychedelic experience and, and ultimately have them respond well and that they didn't know where they were before and now they're in a different place after. So, I mean, there's just a lot of patients who need access and, and ultimately one of the things we're looking at is how do we create these so more people can, can access them at home and in, in the comfort and what's traditionally done. 
Yeah. And so as far as Alzheimer's and dementia and neurodegenerative disease in general, is there any evidence that using psychedelic compounds throughout your life could potentially prevent those conditions from ever establishing? Or is that kind of maybe just a hypothesis theory at this point? It's, you know, an interesting one. I think it's probably a little too early to make any judgments there. I mean, there have been some meta-analysis going on about you know, people taking psychedelics and having fewer, you know, admissions into psychiatric wards or, you know, having major depressive disorder or suicidality, um, you know, things like depression or sorry, Alzheimer's or dementia is a very complicated disease that we only, I think, partially grasp. Um, and it takes years for this to, to develop. Many times pe people don't know it until it's too late ultimately to treat them. So it's an interesting area. I mean, you know, it seems like the best way to kind of help your brain is to get eight hours of sleep a night to exercise and do these things that generally provide a healthy lifestyle, regardless of, of what it is. Um, you know, I think for your listeners, probably that's a good place to start. Um, yeah. You know, I don't think there's any long term detrimental effects from psychedelics used kind of in their current sort of intermittent, you know, not too often state. Um, so yeah, I mean, interested to see the data and I'm, I'm sure people will be looking at it. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get these answers by the end of our lifetime, but who knows? Right. <laughs> um, so you also mentioned, um, issues with regulation of, of psychedelics in general. And, um, this has obviously been a huge issue in the cannabis industry in both research and working at product companies and really staying in these kind of arbitrary guidelines of legalization often. Is that still a huge issue when working in the psychedelic space or because you're creating novel therapeutics and they're not scheduled, is that a bit easier to work in that space? I would say yes. I mean, we're creating new drugs that really don't have the hallucinogenic effects. I mean, you know, you could, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not about to, to go into sort of the, uh, the analog act, if you will, and, and what makes a schedule one drug versus a, a new analog of, you know, uh, a non-scheduled drug. But initially, yeah, we were working with things like dimethyltryptamine, which is a schedule one drug. Uh, we had to get um, DEA clearance to work with it in our lab. It's not an arbitrary process. It takes time. Uh, working with an academic institute at the University of South Florida certainly helped kind of expedite this process. Um, having kind of worked on both sides in, in the cannabis space, I can say that it's actually easier on the psychedelic side because we are going down an FDA pathway, which pretty much means all the research you're doing, as long as you fall within FDA guidelines, going through clinical trials, not making untoward claims about your product is fully legal. Um, having worked in cannabis, I mean, just getting a bank account was tough. I mean, getting kicked out of many banks, which I saw recently happened to you. I'm sorry. It's happened um, to everyone. When I posted that, I had so many responses, but luckily the community also wants to help you. They're like, you know, check out this bank, try this route, try this thing. It's like, okay, that's helpful. But why is this still happening? Even with like cannabis adjacent companies that aren't even specifically like working with the plant. Yeah. And even still, like we had certain vendors that we couldn't purchase from directly. I mean, these were huge established vendors that say, you're in that industry, sorry, we can't work directly with you. So we'd have to go through a third party to then purchase from them. 
it's just, yeah, there's so many hurdles to, to the industry that kind of we don't really face on a day-to-day well, with, within Solera and the research that we're doing in psychedelics. It's unfortunate. Um, I mean, I think regulations are starting to move forward in cannabis to, to help some of this and really help small businesses. I mean, it's, you know, not the top MSOs. They're really not struggling to, to bank or to have the capital to fund their business. It's the small companies. So, I think, you know, once those regulations get through, it's really going to be more equitable for more and cause less headaches and ultimately provide an industry that creates, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of jobs, provides billions of year and revenue. It's a gross domestic product that's within the U.S. You know, we're not outsourcing this to, say, the cartels overseas or, or on a different border. And it it's helpful. Um, and ultimately, I mean, THC is an approved drug. It's been approved since the 1980s. CBD is an approved drug uh, for about seven or so years for epilepsy. So, yeah, I mean, it's just archaic, but I guess these are sort of the growing pains you have to go through in these industries. Yeah, it is also a little bit fun to to be part of the growing pains, like with the hope that you look back in 20, 30 years and you say, wow, remember how difficult that was and how easy it is now? Hopefully. I mean, I'm chronically thinking positively, but um, so would you mind kind of walking us through what the drug development pipeline looks like? Like what are the steps from going kind of with a lead, well, not even a lead molecule, a molecule like psilocybin, and then trying to determine other structures that might be similar that are still, you know, efficacious for the, the endpoints you're looking for? How many steps? Are there animal models? Is there you know, is there computer modeling? Uh, what are the different steps that you guys take? Yeah, all of the above. Um, so early on, probably in mid 2019, after esketamine was approved for depression, you know, we we looked at the industry, Jackie, my co-founder and I, and said, I think there's an opportunity to develop new drugs that work better. And that was our starting point. And from there, having two chemists who've worked on a lot of drug discovery projects, looked at a lot of unique scaffolds, kind of came up with some ideas that we think would work. So our our main goal is really not to modify the structure of, say, psilocybin or dimethyltryptamine too much. Um, I mean, those drugs themselves look a lot like serotonin, which is the natural molecule that really engages the serotonin system and, and helps people and, and Um, so we didn't want to create a new molecule that would have off target effects, say looking at, you know, a dopamine receptor, which, you know, a lot of the sort of phenethylamines or MDMA methamphetamine and MDMA are are pretty similar in terms of their structure. So, you know, those have addictive qualities. They have, um, you know, stimulant properties that aren't necessarily ideal for, for creating a drug. So we wanted to create something that really kind of engages the serotonin system more selectively uh, or selectively than, you know, kind of creating new molecules. Once you do that, those drugs are going to have a lot of off-target effects. You're modifying the structure. Again, you mentioned getting into the brain and actually where it has its effects. And once you start really creating new molecules, that can be a problem. So for us, we focused on the tryptamines. Um like DMT, like psilocybin, and making small modifications to those drugs. Again, so it would more uh, closely target the serotonin system. 
we had some ideas that we could reduce hallucinogenic effects. Ultimately, they proved true, which is great as a scientific hypothesis. But what we did was we actually created our third eye platform. And you mentioned computational chemistry, so I'll do, I'll do my best to explain it for your listeners <laughs> um, you. and use some, some hand motions because that always helps. So uh, the serotonin is... Uh, system is a series of about 14 different receptors and they're located within a membrane and what computational chemistry is is you crystallize this protein so you now have a three-dimensional view of it that you can model in computers so the serotonin uh, receptor 2a 5-HT2A is the receptor responsible for hallucinations but it also is a highly druggable target most um, antipsychotic drugs target 2A, except they don't activate it like psychedelics do. They, they kind of dampen it down. So there's about, I think, eight or so crystal structures of 5-HT2A with different drugs bound. And what we can then do is take that crystal structure, create a drug very quickly using computers, put it into the 2A structure, and see how well it compares to, say, LSD or psilocin, uh, compare that to known antipsychotics that have been uh, developed and crystallized there. So pretty quickly we could determine, you know, with pretty good uh, predictability, whether or not that compound was going to be hallucinogenic when we made it. And we can screen compounds, you know, about 200,000 a week if we really wanted to. So this wow. allows us to iterate very, very quickly. And especially we had a large library of compounds and creating molecules and testing them in a traditional sense is not quick, I would say. Um, so this was a good filtering process to, to kind of narrow down our, our compound library to a manageable number that we could then create in the lab and then do this testing. So step one is just ensuring that said compound can interact with the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor, but the other serotonin receptors you know, maybe you screen that later in the process, but the 2A is like the most important for the therapeutic endpoints that you're looking for. 2A was, it's obviously important because hallucinations are, are something that we were looking to target. So that was, we'll call it our model system. And we also look across 22 different CNS receptors. Um, so, you know, we're looking at dopamine, opioid, which certain cannabinoid or uh, psychedelics hit, um, and other things like Sigma one. So we use sort of our data set initially from two a and kind of spread that out across other CNS receptors. So that was our initial filtering process. Um, and then ultimately we wanted to find drugs that didn't interact similarly to known hallucinogens. So that was sort of our hit pool. Um, and then we, we handed, you know, this data off to the synthetic chemists within Solera. We then created these compounds and, you know, we're doing, uh, cellular assays and receptor assays to show, okay, number one, does it match what we see in our computational experiment at 2A? Uh, are we getting activity? Largely, yes. Um, you know, when you don't make big changes to molecules, you're really not going to change the receptor pharmacology too, too much. Um, in certain cases, more so than others. Um, and then we, we look at not just does it bind to 5-HT2A or uh, another target that we're really, really interested in is actually 5-HT6, another serotonin receptor that's been studied a lot for Alzheimer's disease, all the way up to phase three. Uh, wow. we, our lead molecule, SIL006, actually has some pretty potent effects there. 
um, that we actually think is driving some of the activity that we see in mood disorders, even in cognition in, in some of our studies. So, you know, we want to understand not just one receptor, but really, I mean, any neurological drug hits more than one target. So, uh, you know, the, the analogy used a lot is you're not going to play a song by playing one note. You know, you want to create a, a symphony, if you will. So it's finding the right notes to tune out the effects you don't want, but also retain the, the therapeutic aspects of psychedelics that you, you do want. Okay, so step two in the pipeline process is to look at the in vitro activity in the laboratory to make sure that you can confirm what you found in the computational studies. And then any compounds that show promise in both the computational and in vitro studies, then you move on from there. Correct. So the next step is looking at animal models. Um, there are some, some tests that we run uh, they're called the head twitch experiment. So when you give a known hallucinogen to a mouse, it will twitch its head as a response. Um, not really sure why that is, but it's been validated in about 100 or so drugs from mouse to human. So it, it does work. So that's sort of the next step in actually testing whether or not this compound is going to be hallucinogenic in, in humans. Um, so every compound that we predicted to be non-hallucinogenic and we've tested in this head twitch model has been non-hallucinogenic. So we do have some pretty good validation there. Um, we also look at other behavioral tasks for depression, for anxiety, uh, even addiction models. So getting animals addicted to a substance, dosing your drug, and seeing how well the animal will then not go back to the substance of abuse. Um, other tests that you can look at for learning and memory. So we run a cohort of about 10 different behavioral animals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 10 different behavioral experiments in animals. Expandables is kind of a good word, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly, do you, um, in the mouse, or are you using mice as your model animal? Correct. Okay. Yeah. In the mice models or in the in vitro um, studies before you get to this point, do you do any studies on neuroplasticity? I'm not really sure exactly what those laboratory studies look like, but I've seen videos of, you know, brain cells, like kind of talking to each other, getting closer, extending um, the different components of the cells. So is that something you are screening for during the pipeline? Or is that something that you're kind of just like hoping is part of this process because of the receptor interactions and the general pharmacology? I mean, ultimately, neuroplasticity is important to the way these these drugs work. It's not something that we screen for initially because, you know, we believe our behavioral experiments are sort of that the therapeutic outcome that we're looking for. We do use psilocybin as a positive control during our animal studies. So we know psilocybin works for depression. So if we see a similar response in animals similar to psilocybin, we know that our drug is, is active. Um, so it is one of the things that we are now looking at for our lead molecule uh, 006, uh, just to confirm kind of what our assumptions are in that, yes, it is helping sort of create new connections and, and stimulate these neurites. So it's not something in our initial screening because it is a fairly onerous task uh, there aren't many people with speciality here. I'm sure that will change, but um, it is sort of that next step in sort of, quote unquote, validating the the mechanism of action of how these drugs are actually working. Okay, interesting. And and we do we know the mechanism of neuroplasticity or is that still kind of a mystery in the psychedelic realm? 
so it's funny that you say it. Um, a pub a paper was just published um, recently looking at LSD and psilocin, and this was published in, in Nature Neuroscience, obviously a very reputable journal, to show that the therapeutic effects of LSD and psilocin um, actually come through the neuroplasticity uh, pathway, which is a TKRB, a receptor that basically stimulates a, a marker to then promote neuroplasticity within the brain. So in the same study, they, they used a, a 5-HD2A knockout or antagonist to show that the effects are driven through neuroplasticity and actually not through the hallucinogenic mechanism. Um, so for known hallucinogens without any 2A activity, for them to still have neuroplasticity and for them to still be active in depression models as well as anxiety models is, I mean, it was a breakthrough in, in, in this space, I would say for sure. So I think with that, there's certainly more credibility that neuroplasticity is kind of the way that it works. And ultimately, you know, you don't need the hallucinogenic effects for these molecules to work. Wow. I can't wait to go read that paper after this call. I'm so excited. And I'll also uh, link it in the show notes so other people can also read it because that's amazing. Um, I guess a follow-up question before we get back to finishing the pipeline. Um, when people are using um, psychedelic substances to maybe heal from trauma or these types of like really, really interwoven, like deep, deep conditions in their psyche, do... Is there any rationale for like the hallucinogenic effects being helpful for kind of letting go and kind of reaching a different state and then having a psychiatrist or a friend or someone kind of walk you through that? Or is that still not really necessary in, in any of these desired outcomes? The, the study that I mentioned that was just published, obviously that's in mouse, which is not human. You can't, you know, give psychotherapy to a mouse, at least not that I'm aware of. So, you know, there is some, some translatability that is unknown, I would say at this point. Um, my personal belief is that there are certainly some people and some indications that will benefit more from a hallucinogenic traditional psychedelic experience. Um, you know, things like, I think PTSD and being able to work through that trauma is going to be very important for patients. Uh, similarly with major depressive disorder or suicidality, uh, even end of life care and sort of the trauma that goes through that experience, I do think a traditional psychedelic would be probably more beneficial. I, I think it provides new insight that you wouldn't get from, you know, without having the, the experience. So, I mean, ultimately, you know, the data will play out the way it does, but, you know, I, I think there are certain indications that will certainly benefit more from a traditional psychedelic. Yeah, and, and kind of what you're talking about. I mean, these different therapies are tools in a toolbox to whatever is your best, you know, healing. It's not like everybody needs to take the same substance at the same dose and have the same outcomes. And, you know, when I first read about um, Cell 006, I immediately was thinking about, uh, the reduction in bad trips and if set and setting were still, you know, just as important with a non hallucinogenic substance. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you don't have any research in that realm yet, but just based on like, you know, your thoughts and, and how you guys move forward, do you think like 
people, I, I know you said people could, you know, dose at home and maybe it could just kind of be a part of the end of their day to like, you know, they still might find it important to have a good set and setting, but it's not as integral in determining the, the outcome of that experience. If you want to look at, say, traditional antidepressants, SSRIs, as an example, so SSRIs also induce neuroplasticity. It just takes about six weeks for them to promote this process, which correlates to their you know, activity. It takes six weeks for the drugs to work and the patients to respond. So if we're looking at that as an example, you know, there's obviously no set and setting that goes along with taking uh, an antidepressant molecule. What's different about, I would say, the drugs that we're creating, like SIL006, is that the neuroplasticity events are, are very rapid and the, the onset is very rapid, so you don't have to wait six weeks. Um, we're also looking at things now and, and showing how long does it last after a single dose. You know, obviously with SSRIs, you have to chronically dose. With psychedelics, it's you know maybe six, 12 months apart in some cases. Um, so we're trying to pinpoint sort of what is the dosing regimen for a patient to respond? And personally, I, I think set and setting will, will certainly have uh, a role in hallucinogenic and, and traditional psychedelics. But with our molecules, we're looking at them as, you know, people live their normal lives and they'll take this molecule however needed, uh, however it's needed for a time point and they will feel better without the talk therapy. And I, definitely think talk therapy has its time and place. I think it is helpful for a lot of people, but we're not really looking at that component within our own drug development. We're looking at it as a single molecule, um, you know, taken at home for, uh, you know, we haven't announced an indication yet, um, but there's certainly, there's a lot of opportunities to help patients with this. All right. Awesome. And has your team explored um, either with SIL006 or other psychedelic compounds how effective microdosing is compared to more macrodoses, uh, specifically with non-hallucinogenic substances, is there a therapeutic benefit of microdosing? Great question. <laughs> I think my, my scientist hat on says yet to be determined. I think my rational brain says, I do think there is some benefit. Um, there's been a lot of, you know, uh, research coming out recently that shows there is some benefit, but it's really no greater than a placebo effect in most people. Um, the issue with developing drugs like this is about 30 to 40% of people, if you give them uh, a placebo or sugar pill, think it's working for whatever it is. And, you know, when you're, you're doing this in a couple hundred people, it's not really statistically significant. Um, so to really test for it, you're having to look at thousands, tens of thousands of people for, for microdosing, for instance. Whereas with psychedelics, there is no placebo effect. I mean, if you get a psychedelic drug, you're going to know it. And if you got a sugar pill and you didn't get a psychedelic, you'd probably know it as well. So you're able to look at a smaller portion of people to show statistical significance. Um, Ultimately, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of meta-analysis and looking at sort of microdosing and how it works, but I do think it'll play out um, as an effective treatment. You know, one of the ways that we're looking at our own drug development programs and with SIL006 is right now psychiatric 
drug development all comes down to a subjective response. You give a drug to someone, they tell you how they feel. Do you feel better or worse than yesterday? And there's so much variability there. Again, it comes down to statistics and proving that your drug works better than another or a placebo. So we're looking at ways to look at biomarkers. So uh, say uh, neuroplasticity. So BDNF is a biomarker that you can look at to show the drug is upregulating neuroplasticity. And we know across many different modalities, whether it be ketamine, whether it be transcranial magnetic stimulation or antidepressants, that increasing neuroplasticity does correlate to therapeutic benefit. So looking at other biomarkers similar to that one, or looking at specific indications where you can get quantitative feedback um, and not just a subjective response from a patient. So I'll, I'll give an example of this, and it's uh, actually social anxiety disorder. There is no current treatment for social anxiety. People are given chronic SSRIs to hopefully reduce chronic anxiety or, or, or social anxiety. But with social anxiety in a clinical trial, you put someone with the indication in a room and they have to read um, you know, a prepared speech that they're not ready for. And you, you look at biometric data. Are they more anxious? Is their heart rate up? Are their cortisol levels elevated? Is their breathing upregulated? And you can correlate this then to, okay, they're not as anxious from you know, a, a biological standpoint, as well as, are you more anxious or not? And you can look at it, again, more quantitatively to provide statistical significance. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, these... It's so difficult to study the brain, the human brain, um, which I'm sure you're so aware of. Um, but kind of going back to the end of the the mouse studies, you know, yeah. where where do you go when you have a substance that is very active in mouse studies? It's shown to be positive in the in vitro studies, the computational studies. Everything's lining up perfectly. You have all your data. Do you go to clinical trials next, or is there another step in between? Yeah. So before you run human clinical trials, you have to, it's what the, the FDA calls an, an investigational new drug filing. And in order to meet this criteria, you have to continue to dose your drug in two different animal species to show that it's relatively safe. Um, so this is currently where we are with our, our lead molecule. Um, so it's one of those things, it's just a lot of check boxes, um, but certainly is important because you, you want to make sure that you have a safe drug before begin dosing any humans clearly. Yeah. So do you have any kind of estimated timeline of when the animal studies will be finished? Yeah. So we're looking to submit our IND, the investigational new drug to the FDA at the beginning of next year. So um, really kind of the intervening months now are, are running these tests, making sure there's no adverse events. You know, you're looking at organ toxicities. There's about 14 or 15 different studies that you have to show to, to, to prove that your molecule is safe enough to, to go into humans. Wow. So maybe, maybe early next year on clinicaltrials.gov, maybe some of the listeners will be able to, to participate in research studies. Who knows? Yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> Very cool. So are you still, even though you have SIL006 as your current lead compound, you know, that's the one that you're really polishing up these final studies for, are you still in the works of developing other drugs while this one is kind of finishing up clinical trials? Do you always kind of have things in the pipeline that you're trying to develop and investigate and research? 
Yeah, it's it's an iterative process. So, you know, we have some good hits. Now, how can we make those molecules better? Or we've now synthesized a lot of compounds and we need to continue to test them. So we're still very much active in the lab and developing these compounds along with, you know, doing the studies that we need to to prove SIL006 uh, uh, is safe to go into human studies. It's, yeah, a very active time in the lab and has been for the last three years. Awesome. So kind of a personal question that you can answer or not, uh, up to you. Um, so did you have any sort of like psychedelic experience that really made you like want to research this and, and get to the bottom and, of it and make it more accessible and, you know, make these molecules more dosable and more essentially better as drugs? Or is this kind of like, where, where did your passion of psychedelics come from? Yeah, I mean, looking back, obviously, in graduate school, you know of all these natural products, whether it be cannabis or, or psilocybin or DMT, and it had always piqued my interest, no doubt. Um, but in the intervening, you know, years and months, certainly, I've I've experimented with psychedelics. Um, I've had my own experiences. I would say it was certainly a catalyst for the creation of Solera. Um, I was sort of in a rut in my, my old career and it just so happened that psychedelics were exactly what I needed to, to kind of really have a new passion. And I mean, it's certainly something I'm going to devote my life to and understanding the brain, understanding how these molecules work. Um, it was, it was very transformative and it is for a lot of people. And you know, we want to share this experience or, or these molecules with as many people as we can, because I do think there's benefit um, that can be derived from them. So, yeah, it's, you know, I, I like to practice a little bit what I preach sometimes. But, um, yeah, it's I'm certainly, you know, an advocate for the psychedelic industry as a whole, whether they be hallucinogenic molecules or not, Um because again, I think the promise is immense and we need to do whatever we can as researchers, as scientists, as drug companies, as biotech and pharma to, to enable access for patients because unfortunately there's a lot of suffering around the world and the, the pandemic has not helped at all and whatever we can do to help people, I mean, that is our singular mission at Solera. That is awesome to hear. All right. So this portion of the podcast is called High Thoughts, and it's going to be questions from some Patreons, which I encourage to also be obscure as possible, but you can ask anything that you want. All right. So Rebecca Sten asked, is it possible that a non-hallucinogenic compound could cause hallucinogenic um, episodes in some of the population, but not others? Hmm. That is a very good question. It's possible only because we don't understand fully what the, we'll call it heterogeneity is from person to person. Um, you know, I, I feel very confident that our drugs are going to be non-hallucinogenic across the board, but it's, it's probably too early to tell if certain people are going to be maybe more sensitive to it. Um, I don't think it would be a quote unquote hallucinogenic experience, but maybe some other kind of psychoactive type um, response. But it's a good question. I feel stumped. <laughs> 
No, I thought that was a good question, too. I was really impressed by that. And I mean, I'm sure you don't have like kind of best practices outlined right now as far as like people taking these substances at home because you're not there yet, uh, which is reasonable. There's a long process to get there. But I would assume people would still need to be in some sort of like comfortable, safe space and, you know, not like driving a car on the freeway, you know, taking these compounds. So even if you were to have some sort of hallucinogenic episode you'd still be in a in a safe place if that were to happen yeah and it's one of those you know uh side effects that come on a label do not operate heavy machinery or things like that you know ultimately you know we need the human data to to fully understand how it's going to work in a broad population of people but you know if those are the side effects you know we'll we'll see we'll see how it works cool so the next question is I think kind of funny. So this is from Andy L. And he asked, have you ever had a killer lead compound and then something went terribly wrong when you were analyzing it? Um, I will say not at Solera, but back in graduate school, uh, I was working on a molecule. It was really interesting. It was a new compound. And actually, I, I derived it from... Uh, a fungus that we collected from a marine environment and then actually co-cultured it together with another fungal pathogen and actually created new chemistry that a single organism grown alone wouldn't have. So it's sort of going back to... I love co-culture to, experiments. They're always cool. <laughs> hard to reproduce, which ultimately was the problem. So I had grown this big you know, vat of co-culture, extracted it down, found the molecule, really excited, had like a singular milligram of it, which for, you know, structural elucidation is not enough. And, you know, now having synthetic chemistry makes it a lot easier. But ultimately this molecule, I used a solvent that wasn't clean and it was contaminated. So basically that molecule was then gone uh, for all intents and purposes. So I went back and uh, with a a lot of help uh, from some lab mates, actually co-cultured them on solid media. So you can actually see sort of the zone of inhibition. The the fungus wouldn't grow beyond a line. You cut out the organisms, you extract them separately and actually got a much better yield um, and, and was able to determine what the structure was. So thankfully I was able to recover from it. But man, that year and a half was pretty, pretty rough. I, I feel for you. I've, I've, I've had just like similar things happen that you, you're so close to the end and then something like a contaminated solvent happens and all the time that you spend up to there just ruined and then you have to start over and rethink everything. And with natural products, like just every like every microgram of an isolated compound is so valuable. And when you lose some of it one way or another, it's just like heart wrenching. Yeah, I've um, <laughs> I had an NMR tube drop outside, and I was outside on the, the sidewalk trying to re-extract it out of concrete. Ultimately, that was a fruitless experiment. Oh my god! Yeah, shows you the value of you know what you can find, I guess. Yeah, we call them Kim wipe extractions because we would like spill a compound and then clean it up with the Kim wipe, and then have to extract the Kim wipe. It was just. You just feel like so pathetic at that moment, like scooping up every like little, little bit, but it it's worth yep. it for the amount of hours you put into that. Yeah. Um, 
So then I like to kind of just end the podcast with giving advice to the next generation of scientists and, you know, how do you stay inspired? What advice would you give to people who want to get into the psychedelic space, whether it's research and development, uh, whether it's, you know, helping people as a therapist, you know, what what advice would you give? Because you're very successful in this space. And I think a lot of people look up to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I think there's so much opportunity and potential within the industry. I mean, not even just psychedelics, but brain health now. I mean, we just have a better understanding of what what makes drugs work, what makes people unhealthy. And, you know, specifically looking at psychedelics, I mean, we are in a golden age again. And there's a lot of research being done, specifically right now on the clinical side, looking at, you know, therapy with the patients. I mean, there's a huge unmet need right now for therapists to supervise these therapies. I think MAPS, who is the company who's right now in phase three clinical trials for MDMA, saying there needs to be 30,000 therapists trained by the end of this decade in order to meet the potential and demand of uh, MDMA for PTSD. So, yeah. And I mean, there's programs now popping up. I'll plug one of the ones at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They have their own masters in, I think, psychedelics or something similar um, that people can actually be trained. So University of Wisconsin-Madison does psilocybin trials as well as MDMA trials. So they're very well versed in, you know, how this works, how to train people properly. So I think that is an area that for sure is there needs to be, um, you know, more, more resources, more people going into that area. Um, you know, looking at sort of the drug development side, I mean, I think we've only kind of scratched the surface of what's possible for new chemistry of these molecules. Um, I mean, we've got 250,000 compounds in our pipeline that, you know, we we haven't, again, scratched the surface of, many of which are non-hallucinogenic. They have really interesting pharmacology in the way they interact with these different receptors. So, you know, figuring out what's the best way to develop a drug that has the right effects and fewer side effects. I mean, that's one area that, you know, we're looking at that's uh, very, very fascinating that I'm sure is going to have a lot of research being poured into it over the next 10, 20 years. Um, You know, and as well, looking at sort of the technology behind uh, the psychedelic therapy and, um, you know, there's ways to maybe you don't need a full hands-on experience with a human. I, I do think that's a great way to... Uh, use psychedelics in a in a traditional set and setting profile there's now a lot of digital tools being developed to basically you know make the education process of what's going to happen when you take this or the integration process of okay now you've had it now what and ways to kind of re-teach your brain neuroplasticity the easiest way to induce neuroplasticity for yourself is to learn And, you know, I think having that feedback loop of saying, okay, I feel a little stuck. Maybe there's an app or a digital tool or a task that you can do to kind of make the treatment more effective or last longer. Um, There is a lot of interest in that space. And um, I think there's a lot of promise. Um, And just in general, looking at tech, analyzing all the data that's coming out and brain scans, uh, fMRI, EEG, 
figuring out again, you know, what makes a brain depressed or, you know, suicidal or have trauma and PTSD. And, you know, ultimately I think the DSM, which is basically the handbook of how you diagnose patients with a specific mental illness is going to be rewritten. Uh, I, I think psychedelics are going to be a catalyst for that because we now have one drug that covers many of them. And if we can look at ways that a brain is, you know, having signatures of one disease versus another, you can now create a, a drug or a therapy system that works for that specific patient. It's not just, oh, you feel depressed, here's an SSRI, and, you know, we hope it works. Uh, I think that is really now the age that we're moving into. When you look at other industries like oncology, for instance, it's all about precision medicine or using your own immune system or your own you know, capabilities to fight off the treatment or, or fight off the, the cancer. So I think this is the area that is really next for neuroscience and, and psychiatry is really coming up with better ways to diagnose patients, to find the right treatment for them and to make sure it works. And it's, it's definitely a task. There's no doubt about it, but we now have better tools, better technology to, to develop those types of things. And certainly in the next 20, 30 years for, for your listeners or for those interested in the space. Yeah. There's, there's so much opportunity here. Wow. That was a great response. And I appreciate you mentioning the importance of integration, whether it's a hallucinogenic substance or it's not, or even if it's a significant life event that you really need to process, you can kind of practice the art of integration, even if you're not taking a psychoactive or a you know hallucinogenic substance. And I think that's I, what people kind of forget sometimes. If you have a slightly traumatic event or you have something happening in your life, like take the time to process that, write down your thoughts, really think about it and how that could affect you, not just right now, but like later in life as well. Agree 100%. Yeah, but I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to be a guest on this podcast. I think all the information that you shared today is going to be so helpful for listeners. So I really appreciate it. And I think, um, you know, wh where else can the listeners follow you and keep up with what Solera is up to? Yeah, I mean, uh, any interested listeners, uh, if you have any questions or inquiries, please feel free to write us an email. If you go to info at Solera, P-S-I-L-E-R-A.com, uh, you can follow us, our website, www.solera.com, um, you know, all of our socials, uh, primarily LinkedIn and Twitter. Those are sort of our main, but, you know, I think we're on the others as well under Solera. So uh, feel free to, yeah, continue on our story. Cool. And I'll link those uh, below in the description of this episode as well. But thank you again. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I learned a lot and I'm excited for this episode to be released. Thanks so much. I had a blast. If you like this episode or learn something new, please drop a five-star review or like and share on YouTube. This is a brand new podcast and your interactions and button clicking makes a huge difference. And I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll see you next week on the Bioactive Podcast.